tased, to be prepared for dangerous situations. I heard a lady tell a story about a previous life that she had lived where she very unadvisedly uh, would hitchhike. Uh, and on one particular occasion, she was hitchhiking from her town to a nearby town, long before the miracle that is Uber, of course. And a car approached and invited her on the inside, and she found a young man there. As she sort of sat down in the seat, the driver looked at her and said, Look, I know, I, you know I don't need any money uh, for this trip, as long as you know there's other ways to pay for the favor. Well, she immediately recognized the threat, but she said she remained calm and understood that uh, she acknowledged the fact that he was right. But then she reached into her purse and she said, just allow me for a second to get my security out. Well, apparently the lady had only just recently returned from a medieval festival that she had gone to uh, where they were selling uh, weapons, among many other things, that sort of were fashioned in the style of that particular time. And she had purchased what apparently was known as an avar dagger. Apparently the, uh, the handle was itself a, a ornate sort of curl-looking uh, handle, and, and, the, and the blade itself was long enough and plenty sharp enough to do something if she needed it. Um, and she pulled that out and set it on her lap, just looking menacing and, and, and terrifying. And so she placed it there, and she said, no, no, that still sounds really good. And she said, in retrospect, it was almost worth doing the idiotic thing of hitchhiking to see the man's, get re- man's eyes get really wide. He turns really pale, and he says this. He goes, or sometimes it's nice just to do nice things for free now, isn't it? And she said, I couldn't agree more. Isn't it so great that there's so many nice people around? Look, here's the point. Being prepared for a crisis can overcome a lot of the disaster when it finally strikes. And Jesus is a good rabbi. He knows this. He's just finished unpacking this this jaw-dropping reality of the Christian life in all of its countercultural glory. But as a good rabbi, he knows that inevitably there's going to be threats. There's going to be threats that are going to be out there that will threaten to undo people who've decided to follow him in this way. He knows there's going to be threats from without, false teachers that are trying to twist the message. There'll be threats from within. (laughs) I mean, there's plenty of self-deception and presumption in all of our hearts to misguide us. And then then finally, there's threats from our circumstances that when the storms come, we find out who's been prepared and who's not. In other words, Jesus knows that we really are not going to have any security in the good life unless we're prepared to prepare to sort of be about the things that Jesus says mark his followers, which among all those things, he means integrity. Jesus wants us to be the same thing on our outsides as we are on our insides. He wants us able to sort of defend the truth against those that are trying to undermine it. And so therefore, he says, to maintain the integrity of what Jesus has taught you is arguably the challenge of the Christian life. That's what's really in front of us. And so he says, I want to give you three things that will protect you and protect a life of integrity, a life of wholeness, a life that's genuine, a life that's humble. And it's built on at least three things. Number one, it's got to have the fruit. Number two, it's got to have the knowledge. And then thirdly, it's got to have the foundation. Okay, let's look at that first one. It's got to have the fruit. Jesus' first warning are about threats from without. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets. There's already one commentator who said that if you're going to store your household poisons uh, in the same cabinet with your um, medicines, 
you better make sure that you have it clearly marked which is which. When I was a child, the first service had no idea what I was talking about. But when I was a child, I distinctly remember an ad campaign for these little green stickers that parents were encouraged to put on all of the, the chemicals underneath your sink where you kept all the stuff down there. And it was called Mr. Yuck. Anybody remember Mr. Yuck? Mr. Yuck, the song went, Mr. Yuck is mean, Mr. Yuck is green. Okay, some of you apparently not. I won't use the illustration ever again. X out. Jesus wants his followers to know. He goes, I need for you to mark clearly the people who are spiritually dangerous to you. Which is, there was a whole group of people that Jesus refers to in verse 15 as ravenous wolves. In other words, these people will be like poison to you. And he goes on to describe what the warning label looks like. And in verse 16 he says, You will recognize these false teachers by their fruits. Jesus is saying, look, there's an unbreakable connection between your roots, the things that you really are on the inside, and the fruits that come out of your life. But you will always manifest something in your life. You cannot not bear some kind of fruit. The question then becomes, what exactly is the fruit Jesus is talking about by which we might identify someone who's trying to compromise the truth? Well, I think the obvious candidate is the elaboration on the fruits of the Spirit that Paul gives in Galatians 5. That's probably true. Chapter 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, this unbreakable connection between the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of Jesus is such that if you say you follow Jesus, you should be able to expect that these things in the list that Paul just made would come out of your life. And I don't see any reason to deny this. These attitudes should flow out. And if they don't, I can be mightily suspect of someone who fails to have those things. That's poison for my soul if they don't possess those. However, I think Jesus actually is a little more explicit about this whole fruit question. There's a little story in the book of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, where Jesus is entertaining a line of questioning from a group of people who are speculating about why bad things happen to people. And their assumption is the bad things happen to people because they're bad. You know, Jesus, who was it that sinned, you know, when those Galileans, all that blood mixed in the Galileans, apparently there was some political uprising with Governor Pilate that had gone on and caused a bunch of people to die. Jesus even refers to a, a, a tower that had fallen down in Siloam that killed a bunch of people then. And these people were thinking to themselves, I, I know why that happened because those were the sinners, right? It reminded me a little bit about 9-11. You know, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 when the towers came down. And do you remember in the months, for those of you old enough to remember, how often we searched for an explanation? How could this happen? Who's to blame? Obviously, the, the, the terrorists and the uh, Islamic ideology that undergirded it were a first obvious villain. Others people said that it was God's judgment on us as a nation. Some people pointed to, you know, lax national security problems. Regardless, though, someone's got to take the fall for this. But Jesus answers this question in the most fascinating way because what he does is he turns the question around on the questioner and ends up saying, no, actually, that's not any of the reason why those things happen. And because they were sinners. And honestly, I tell you that unless you repent, you likewise will perish. It's a dramatic sort of reversal. Jesus is saying that his followers' reaction 
to evil events that happen around them will be to keep this essential Christian attribute as the main thing from your life. And what is that attribute? Repentance. Unless you repent, the same thing's going to happen to you. Unless you have this most central fruit that is produced from the Christian life, you also will perish. Humility and repentance is the ground from which the entirety of the Christian life is produced. All of it. And, and you see this in, in, back in, in, in the Luke passage. Because right after that, Jesus tells a parable of a fig tree. It was a fig tree that wasn't producing any fruit. So the owner walks up to it and says, tear this tree down. It's worthless. Burn it. But the owner of the land is like, give me some time. Let me dig around it. Let me, let, let me see if I can cultivate it a little bit and see if it doesn't produce fruit. I was reading a commentary who said that the, that, that the particular fig tree that was indigenous to Jesus' region at that time would produce fruit some 10 months out of the year, which meant that it was normal and regular for the tree to produce fruit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the normal Christian life is the one that leads with repentance. It's automatic. It's continuous. And for our purposes, this is the quality that you're least likely going to see in a false teacher. That is the one thing that they won't have. False prophets inevitably come with the clearest vision of why things are happening the way they're happening. I'll tell you what's wrong in our society. It's this particular explanation. I tell you what's going on. It's that explanation. And they claim to be prophetic. And yet Jesus is saying if they lack this essential humility that comes with leading with repentance, living with repentance, and finishing with repentance. You need to stick a Mr. Yuck sticker over that person because they lack what I describe. Verse 17, Jesus describes those trees as if they're diseased. In other words, the most dangerous sickness that someone can have is a sickness that gets inside a person and keeps them from knowing that they're sick. doesn't matter what the doctor is. If he diagnoses you and you're not convinced that you're sick, you'll never do anything that it takes to get well. Look, only repentance should mark the faithful teacher. And for our purposes, that's what protects us. Be prepared. You'll know them by their fruits. And if they don't produce a fruit that leads with humility and repentance, your suspect ought to go straight up. So that's the fruit, Jesus says, that we're supposed to be equipped of in order to be prepared. Secondly, though, he also wants us to have the knowledge the knowledge. Like there's another protection that Jesus gives us. And it reminded me of a story that I read years ago, about 20 years ago or so, about the fact that the SAT, you know, the college prep test that you take, um, had, had included some, some sort of human interest questions. And since there's like, you know, a million kids that take the SAT every year, they would sort of do some interesting surveys. Well, on this particular SAT exam, they included this question uh, to be answered by the 830,000 respondents. And it was this question that said, how many of you are below average at getting along with other people? Okay, it's trying to measure how much a young person in high school sees themselves as being inadequate, below average at getting along with other people. How many of the 830,000 respondents do you think said, yes, I'm below average at getting along with other people? Zero. Not one high school student marked yes to the end. As a matter of fact, 60% of them ranked themselves in the top 25% of all people in getting along with other people. 
25% of the respondents put themselves in the top 1% of human beings learning to get along with other people. We refer to this, psychologists say, as a self-serving bias. But what Jesus is saying is, is that self-serving bias is crazy dangerous. Look, deception from the outside is one thing. To break that deception, all you got to do is tell me the truth, and I'm over. But what happens when the deception comes from inside you? You know that old, uh, that old joke, um, if you were being deceived, would you know it? No, because that's what it means to be being deceived. What if the lie comes from inside? And here's the deal. Jesus knows this about us. He knows that there is an inertia inside every human heart that is constantly pulling you from the faith that only should be in Jesus and the gospel and onto the things that you do as a response to that gospel. My mentor, old mentor, Bebo Elkin, used to always say, we are all in Arminian withdrawal. We've been trying for years to try to take back responsibility for our salvation back onto our own shoulders. And so in verses 21 to 23, Jesus starts talking about these self-deceived people who at the end of time in judgment will be quite surprised to find out exactly where they really were. But the crazy thing is, is these people had, had popular temptations that were drawing them away from that life of repentance he was describing. And I bet you they surprise you. I guarantee the first one's going to surprise you. Three things that he describes these people as having. The first one is they had orthodoxy. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now look, that word Lord there is the New Testament's translation of the Old Testament name of God. It's translated in your Old Testament Bibles as Lord, but it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's his intimate name, his personal covenant name that he shared with Israel. In other words, these people have come to look at Jesus as if he is Yahweh. That's correct. <laughs> you got it. You're right. You're saying true and right things. But here's what's happened. Even though they've got the right orthodox beliefs, something else is missing. They've put their trust in their orthodoxy. Now, come on. We are a part in this church of what is known as the Reformed Tradition. And in Reformed theology, I'll be honest with you, it is a decidedly academic tradition where we love, we love, love, love our answers. We love our explanations. There y'all, I have a local pastor who loves to joke with me, man, y'all are over that church over there, y'all just explaining stuff all the time. <laughs> he says it in admiration, but I always take it as an insult. That's a whole other story. We love what we know. And what Jesus is saying is, you can know the right things, but itself can be a distraction. If all of a sudden I put my faith in the fact that I know the right things, especially over against those weirdos over there who believe like you wouldn't believe. Orthodoxy is the first one. The second thing was much more subtle. It's emotionalism. You might not have noticed this, but look, it's not just that these people will say, Lord, it's they'll say, Lord, Lord. Now, why is that important? Well, that's the way the Bible stresses something and shows that it's emotional. If you want to write a paper or something and you want to show stress and emotion in it, you, what do you do with it? You italicize it. Put it in italics and so you know that it's being stressed. They didn't have that in the old days. What they did instead was they repeated it. So when you go back to places like 2 Samuel and David, King David is lamenting the death of his son Absalom. Remember what he says? He says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. What's the point? The point is there's a depth of emotion behind what he's saying. Even Jesus, when he goes to correct Martha, when they have their little conversation about all her busyness, 
He says, oh, Martha, Martha. What's it saying? There's emotion behind it. These people don't just call Jesus Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. They're they're enthusiastic. They came up having these deep, powerful, emotional experiences because of the way they were wired. They may even have tears in their eyes as they do. But invariably, over time, they came to look back at those emotional experiences and say, that's why I'm right with God. Do you remember how emotional I got about that so many years ago? That's why he loves me. That's why he cares about me. The third thing these people have as a distraction is their religion. Seriously. They are very, very active people. They're involved in Christian activity. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? That means they preached sermons from the Bible, just like I'm doing right now. They were healing people. They were doing miracles in his name. In other words, they saw fruit from their ministry. (laughs) And Jesus is saying how easy it is to look at those things and be like, ta-da, Look how well I did here. Did you see those people? The long list of faithfulness that all these people have done in following the Lord because of me. That's what happens. Preachers hate to preach this passage for this very reason. But it's so simple, is it not? John Newton was the first one to introduce this to me. He said, look, there are these blessings that God will often give to someone when grace just slams at the beginning of their Christian life and stuff comes out of them that they're not trying to do. It's just a response to joy. But then just time as it goes, things sort of shift and ever so subtly, I begin to assume that God loves me because I am doing those things. That's the shift. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus says there's an antidote to this, and you you can only see it when you see the response to what he says to people in verse 23. He says, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, look, this is where people get very confused. That phrase, workers of lawlessness, cannot mean sinners in general. Or else this whole grace-centered message to sinners of what Jesus has been preaching is meaningless. I think the key to understanding who those workers of lawlessness are is in the prior phrase that Jesus says when he says, I never knew you. Now look, Jesus in that moment is not confessing, confessing <laughs> ignorance. Uh, Wait a minute, you're not on the list of humans. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there's a deep knowing. There's an intimacy. The word he uses there could also be used in the Old Testament as a way of speaking of of knowing one's wife on the marriage bed. And Adam went and knew his wife, it says there. Jesus is saying, look, be careful. Don't strive for orthodoxy for orthodoxy's sake. Don't strive for the next sort of inflated emotional experience to rest your faith upon. And and, and don't look to your fruitful ministry as some means to save yourself. Only I can do that. Look, enter my kingdom, entrance into my kingdom. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. If you try to bring something, you'll get nothing. That's what he's suggesting there. And so he says, what brings people into my kingdom is an intimacy of knowing. But that intimacy and knowing starts with me. 1 John 4, 19 is the model here. We love. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. That's the order. Same deal. We know because he foreknew me even before the foundations of the earth and set his love upon me. I know because he knows me. This is not some magic, mystical, Gnostic knowledge we're talking about, but it's an intimacy of knowing that he has loved me in the midst of my constant failure. 
You forget that, and then your self-deception, it's just not, it's not far behind. So we have to have the fruit to protect us. We need the knowledge to protect us. But thirdly, we also need the foundation. The foundation. Jesus finishes this with a very interesting uh, contrast between the wise man and the fool. That ought to be familiar to you. This is what, um, this is what every good rabbi would have recognized from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is writers constantly uh, contrasting the wisdom and the fool. And Jesus says there's two houses. They're both exactly the same except for their foundation. The one built their, their place upon the rock. And what that rock is going to be is a place of integrity and a place of wholeness. And that's going to be your foundation. For the other house, it's on the sand. So it has zero security for when th- times get difficult. Now here's my question. Jesus talks about the security of those who built their house on the rock. What's the rock that he's talking about? What does that come to? Well, it's, it turns out that the rock is a favorite image of Jesus Throughout the book of Matthew, I was able to dig up a great quote by N.T. Wright that makes a point about how the original audience would have heard what Jesus was saying. Wright says, not far away from where Jesus sat on a hillside, just 100 miles away or so in Jerusalem, Herod's men were continuing to rebuild the temple. They spoke of that place as God's house and declared that it was built upon the rock, proof against wind and weather. Okay. In the last great sermon in Matthew's gospel, Jesus warns that the temple itself will come crashing down because Israel as a whole has failed to respond to his message. And then halfway through the gospel of Matthew, in another dramatic moment, he promises to Peter that his confession of faith will itself form the rock on which something very different will be built. That is the community that believes in him, Jesus as the Messiah. Do you see what Wright's point is? Jesus is saying, I am the rock. The fact that I am who I am is the foundation on which all of your integrity has to be built. There's no other way. If it's not, then you're going to be the kind of person who's going to say one thing and do another. You'll be someone different on your outside than you are on your inside. And in the end, all of our thinking about who we are as Christians, he says, has to terminate in the person and in the work of Jesus. If that's missing from our confession of faith, the way in which we portray our faith, something's powerfully wrong. And I couldn't help but think, I've had this conversation with campus ministers for years, how often it happened when I was in campus ministry that I would sit down and have a chance to talk to college students about their spiritual life. And it was so fascinating how often they would talk about things like youth group and and quiet times and and, and emotional experiences that happened on mountaintops, spiritually speaking, than they grew up. But you know how rare it was that even, I don't know, the name of Jesus would somehow enter a conversation about their reflection on their own spiritual life. And I realize it's very easy to kind of pick on people. I have no desire to sort of beat up on young people for that reason. Oh, you just want them to give a theological treatise. No. I just think it ought to tell us something in our child rearing, especially when we start to think about our children, that my child could make it all the way through school, get to college, begin to reflect on their spiritual lives and never mention Jesus as if he's a real person. I think we should reflect on that. And I do realize that whenever we get to this conversation about, well, I don't know, how do I know if I'm one of those hypocrites? How do I know if I'm not one of those people that is self-deceived? How can I be confident that my faith is genuine? Well, first of all, I think in my experience, I, the, the, ones, the ones who tend to be the most concerned about the integrity of their souls 
are actually the ones that are the most spiritually attentive and therefore the ones that are least likely to be spiritual posers. If you're struggling with this on the inside, that's probably a good sign. But I think there's actually something else. And Jesus gives a hint of it in his answer in verses 25 and 27. He says, I'll tell you where you'll find out the integrity of your soul. It's going to be in the storms. It's in the storms. The rain fell and the floods came, he says in those two verses. And he says, look, one of the reasons why God's spiritual truth lays so gently on our hearts is because at present life is just kind of, it's kind of smooth sailing. And Jesus is saying at present, when the waters of your life are calm and all of your idols are blessing you, <laughs> it's difficult. But all of a sudden, my crutches get kicked out from under me. I immediately turn to God. I'm like, why are you allowing this to happen? You don't love me anymore. But it's not the truth, is it? We don't want to go back to that life. We think, oh, if I could just have my simple life over again. It got so hard during this season. Do you really want that? In September of 2014, a man by the name of Dean Wilson was arrested in Columbus, Ohio for drunk driving which itself would not be that interesting of a statistic, except for the fact that he was also known as Judge Dean Wilson, Perry County, Ohio's famous get-tough-on-teen-drunk-driving judge. This guy was amazing. He was known as, of going to, to high schools, local school assemblies, and putting on a DUI trial for the kids to scare them straight, right, from drunk driving. But, of course, things changed for him after his arrest, uh, for an offense that he so vigorously preached against from his bench. And three years later, he emerged in the news again, interestingly enough, as the force behind Columbus's what they called the New Direction Program. It was a program that took defendants charged with these low-level offenses, most of them drug-related, and with the assistance of county and state agencies and some counselors, they would walk a person from their arrest through to their recovery and back into a return to normal life complete with a job, with education, in a word, hope. So the question is, how is it possible <laughs> that this judge goes from being this, you know, his press being all about a scared, straight, you know, uh, judge, from being somebody who's trying to give people hope, lost people hope? How indeed? It's probably because of the storm, <laughs> It's the storms. We're so panicked when they strike. We cry out and we're like, there's no way you can love me in the midst of this. But remember, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole of your Christian life is pushing you to the knowledge to see God in the face of Jesus. And it's only those times in which he's all that we have, that he's all that we have to hold on to. Only in that moment do we ever find ourselves realizing that this is what my life was about. And I look back on those difficult, horrible times when the rug got pulled out from under me and I had no idea how I was going to get through that. That I realized he was the only thing worth holding on to. And you know what it becomes? It becomes protection. It's protection from threats. It means that all of those forces that would war against my soul, whether they're from without or from within, they can't touch me because the humility of the gospel has graced my life and I'm clinging to Jesus. That's about all I got on hope, home, and healing, <laughs> is to look to Jesus. That's the center of it all. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would guide us into that because if what you have been saying is true, our hearts are hard to accept that. Father, so often we look to ourselves, even the most subtle of ways, even, Father, as we're praying, we're congratulating ourselves for praying. 
listening to a sermon, we pat ourselves on the back for the way we listened. Father, we need your protection, something fiercely. We long to have you come and make us people who are whole, not divided on the inside, but those who look to you and see you as the very foundation for all of our souls. Would you assist us then, Father, as we sing to you and allow us to praise you for it? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.